Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it, and judge it to decide whether it should be set free <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Movie Oubliette, a cross-hemisphere podcast with me, Conrad, in Cambridge, UK. And my name's Dan, all the way down here in Melbourne, Australia. And in each episode, we're going to delve into our dungeon of forgotten films and pull out a gem to review and discuss together. And at the end, we'll decide whether it deserves to be released into the wild, to be appreciated once more, or whether it should be chucked back in to the oblivion of the oubliette. We'll mainly be discussing genre films, fantastic cinema, so horror and science fiction and fantasy, just because that's fun stuff and we enjoy talking about it. So, um, Dan, how are you? I am very good today and uh, staying warm because it's winter here, uh, although it doesn't (laughs) snow, so... You're, I know you You always laugh at how, at how I'm cold when it's, when it's not actually cold, but yeah, staying warm. <laughs> so what's the temperature there today? Um, I think it was maybe 17 degrees, I think. Oh, okay. Um, I don't know. It's all relative. <laughs> it is, yeah. It's about 23 here, so I'm thinking, ooh, it's getting a bit warm. <laughs> and, and you're in three layers. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> So I uh, I finally watched the, uh, the the deleted scene from Saturn Three, the one that you mentioned, where um, Farrah Fawcett's character comes out in this <laughs> ridiculous kind of Barbarella. Um, is it leather or a PVC outfit? Um, I don't know what it is. I imagine it creaked and smelled, though. To be honest, <laughs> like I. She looked like she couldn't actually move in it. If she moved, she would just fall out of it. It was so tight and revealing. Um, and it was such a strange scene. Like you said, they they just... It's like they'd taken all the drugs in the world and <laughs> they were just prancing around, making lots of noise and dancing and drinking. But it's a very strange scene. It's a really odd scene. <laughs> and I did tonally, it, I, well, I don't know, that film is tonally very strange anyway, but tonally that scene did not belong in that movie. No, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that they took it out, but at the same time, if they'd put it in, I, I probably <laughs> would have been laughing for the entirety of the movie just from <laughs> one scene. <laughs> Yeah, it's a good one. I'm glad you've seen it. Yeah. It's um, pretty freaky. Um, another thing I wanted to mention is um, all the films that we have reviewed so far are mm-hmm. all available on YouTube. Really? All of them. Wow. Um, so, I mean, obviously some of the quality can be a, a little bit... Uh, I think society, the quality looks worse or on par with VHS mm. kind of quality. <laughs> Which is kind of nostalgic. Yeah, yeah, I guess so, yeah. Um, But Demons and Saturn 3 and Willow are all on YouTube, full movies, and, yeah, pretty pretty good quality as well. So 
our listeners out there, you have no excuse to check out these movies <laughs> because they're waiting for you to look at. Yes, unless the respective movie studios spot them and <laughs> shut them down. I hope not. <laughs> so what what are we going to look at today? What are you going to pull kicking and screaming out of the oubliette? Well, I will just go to the oubliette now and uh, take it out just one moment. Mm. All right. Over by the oubliette. Just opening mm. it now. Oh, this one's a bit wiggly. Wow, what a noise. Okay. Right, I'm back. And the movie we'll be uh, taking a look at today is called Razorback. Ah. So this movie is a 1984 Australian film uh, directed by Russell Mulcahy. Mm. And it stars Bill Kerr, Archie Whiteley, and Judy Morris, uh, David Argue, and Chris Haywood. Uh, all Aussie actors, apart from, uh, I don't think I mentioned the main guy, Gregory Harrison. <laughs> so Gregory Harrison is the lead, and he is American. He is, yes. And interestingly, he was offered the role after they considered Jeff Bridges, but decided that he didn't have enough international appeal. I know, <laughs> really missed out. Which was foolish because that same year he was nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> right, right. Um, because I don't even know Gregory Harrison from anything else. Um, no, I don't. I looked him up and he was in one episode of the TV series MASH and a long-running series that was a spin-off from MASH. And I think he's mainly known for that, but... Oh, he was okay. not someone that I'm familiar with at all. No. But great guy. He did a good job, I thought. Yeah, I think he did a good job as well. Mm. So the plot of the film is essentially about a killer pig, <laughs> which is uh, it's not something that I live in Australia and it's not something I hear about. No, you don't live in fear of pigs. No, no, not at all. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't even know... There were wild pigs in Australia, but... Apparently there are. Apparently there are. (laughs) Um, This film was adapted from an original novel by Peter Brennan, Mm -hmm. who apparently was was known before as as just a journalist uh, for TV. So not so well known, I don't think, but I could be wrong. Mm. So the movie starts off uh, with an old guy played by Bill Kerr, and so his character name is Jake... And he's he's just hanging out in his house in the middle of the uh, outback, and then a, a pig pretty much demolishes his house and steals his grandson. <laughs> um, <laughs> which, which isn't funny, really, because I mean, obviously, it's a reference to the the, the dingo famous dingo stole my baby case. Ah, uh, yes, yes, indeed. Um, so the movie continues two years later, I think, and it's in New York. And there's this hotshot female reporter and she's going to be sent to Australia to cover a story about kangaroo culling. Mm. And her husband is left behind in New York. And then so she's sent to Australia. She's doing this coverage. um, And then she gets harassed by these kind of 
I guess the equivalent of rednecks in um in this outback town called Gamilla, um, and she's harassed, and then the pig enters and scares the the rednecks away and begins to ravage the the reporter, <laughs> and then it's assumed she's dead, and then it flashes forward, I guess, a couple of weeks or months, and her husband goes to the outback town. Mm to try to find out what happened to his wife. Yeah, so it's basically has two protagonists, doesn't it? It has uh, Jake, the grizzled old guy with the history with the pig that's trying mm-hmm. to hunt it down, sort of Ahab, Moby Dick style. Mm-hmm. And you've got the husband of the dead journalist who's also trying to find out answers. Yeah, so it's sort of how they resolve those two stories, which is mm. the the overall plot of the film which is reminiscent of other movies but we we can we can talk about that yes so uh we're just going to take a break and we'll be right back So we are back to discuss Razorback. Uh, Conrad, you hadn't seen this film before. What did you think of it? No, I hadn't. And yeah, this is great because this is the second time you've picked the film out of the oubliette for me, and it's one that I haven't uh, one that I haven't seen before. Mm. And I'd heard of it, just mentioned in the list of revenge of nature movies. I'd heard of mm. it, but I had never seen it before. And I had the time of my life watching this movie. <laughs> I can't believe that this is missing from my my filmography, my film education. I thought it was really great. It was great fun. It's r- really interestingly uh, shot. It's mm. a f- fabulous film to look at. As Russell Mulcahy's feature debut, it's um, it's a it's a pretty strong calling card to the industry, I think. Yeah. And I just think it's generally it's a it's a it's a wild ride of a movie. It doesn't take itself completely seriously. I don't think there are some little bits of humour in there, and there are lots of nice details in there that that I would like to talk about. I mean, I think generally it's fairer to say that it's it owes a debt to jaws i think it does yeah yeah so i i watched uh there's a short doco uh, in the special features of the dvd that i have and yeah they pretty much thought hey jaws is doing really well let's see what we can do with a pig and, <laughs> and it's also been it's been dubbed uh jaws on trotters um <laughs> which are pretty much uh, yeah very very similar plot um yeah you can see lots of parallels like you've got jake as the you know the grizzled veteran quint mm. although he actually he's more of an ahab because he has a personal vendetta which quint never particularly had against bruce the shark mm. you have beth the journalist as chrissy the the first person to die and again that scene is pretty brutal mm. it's just a, like the first death in jaws it's it's quite prolonged and it's quite savage and you really see her fear and her her pain and suffering and you you feel bad for her and you're quite shocked by it i mean even now i think it's quite shocking mm. yeah i think all the death scenes they had to cut down a lot of the more grisly 
uh, shots uh, because of the studio that they were working with just wanted the rating to be a lot lower, I think, uh, for some more audiences, which is a shame. Um, right. Because I think those scenes would have been more effective if they'd shown more blood and more terror. Maybe you could argue that it gains in terms of letting your imagination fill the blanks and your imagination always comes up with scarier things than what you actually see. I mean, certainly that works in terms of the Razorback itself. You don't see it very often. And I think similar to Jaws, it was because they they couldn't get the thing to work. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I, I, I have seen some of the deleted scenes and it really does look like a giant animatronic boar that has very limited range of motion. Mm. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I can see how having those scenes cut did make it more about, yeah, using your imagination, mm. um, just make the scenes a lot more horrifying. And and I think they did a good job in terms of, of the sound design for the scenes. Mm. Like there's a lot of screaming, the... The score is quite intense and and the sound of the pig is pretty uh, um, in your face and um, piercing. Yeah, they're pretty brutal scenes, aren't they? I think they they really work well. And you've got... You know, various other callbacks to Jaws. So you have the famous dolly zoom shot where you... This is one of those things where you... I think you either pull the camera back and zoom in simultaneously or you push the camera forward and zoom out simultaneously. Oh, yeah, and, the uh, the vertigo effect. Exactly, the vertigo effect. It was invented for vertigo mm. um, and famously used by Spielberg in Jaws for when the, uh, I think the kid's name is the Kitna Boy, when the Kitna Boy gets killed and he's and Chief Brody is sat on the beach with his wife, you have that fantastic shot where the whole background behind him sort of stretches out Mm. as he watches in horror and you have the same thing here with with jake Mm. when he sees the razorback that he's been searching for all his all well not all his life but (laughs) for for two years um i when i first found out about that vertigo effect and um i tried doing it and it's so much fun (laughs) and it's such an effective effect with very limited you don't really need to be able to do much <laughs> like uh, in terms it's just matching the dolly forward or the dolly back with the with the zoom and it's yeah it's such an effective effect it is a really bizarre sort of um artifact of the camera lens that works really well my favorite use of it is actually in poltergeist oh. which is supposedly directed by toby hooper rather than spielberg but it's still a debate about that it's debatable but there's a wonderful scene where joe beth williams is running down the corridor trying to rescue her children and the door that she's trying to get to just keeps pulling away Mm. from her in the perspective and it's a it's yeah it's a fantastic way of saying supernaturally that sort of nightmarish thing that you can't get to where you're trying to get to but yeah so there are there are lots of things in this movie like the dolly zoom, like the fact that they're tracking the creature at the end after they've managed to fire a dart into it. And yeah, and a comical scene of the enthusiastic locals forming a posse to kill the Razorback. <laughs> Although Jules didn't have a guy on a camel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I thought it was a wonderful touch. There are lots of little moments of lightness in this that I really liked. Mm. Uh, as 
as a person, I'm not an Australian. I'm a Kiwi, to be clear. But as someone that is living in Australia, um, there are many, many little um, idiosyncratic Australian things in this movie. Okay. That I, I find I always find really, really endearing. Um, I have a huge uh, love of Australian cinema and. Especially Australian cinema that is very deeply Australian as well, you know, not mm. something that's trying to uh, reach a, a, a more global audience. Um, so this movie had, I, I don't when when they're in the pub and they they go into the pub in in the middle of the day and it's a packed full pub because that's all locals <laughs> do in Australia. They go and drink all day. Um, and also the amount of wildlife in this movie is <laughs> insane. Mm. Um, you see an emu, you see kangaroos, you see uh, wild pigs, mm. you see a camel, and you see a wombat. I, what more? What other Australian <laughs> animals can they fit into this film? Um, but I love. I still love. What's it. the creature that um, the character Sarah? The, she has a creature that's sort of sitting in a, a deck chair on her porch, oh, yes. and the camera just starts, and it's like right, right up to the camera, chewing away, and the camera just pans away from. Yeah, it. what the hell that's was a, that? It's a wombat. Uh, it's a, okay. a lovely creature, um, but the. <laughs> They're hugely loved and they're really cute and very uh, very friendly as young mm. animals, but apparently when they get older, they get a bit feral. Uh. Um, and they're very, even though they're, I don't know, about the size of a medium-sized dog maybe, mm. they're really stockily and heavily built. So apparently people that hit them on the road uh, with their cars, the cars get more damaged than the wombats do and the wombats oh. just waddle away as if nothing happens uh, and the car's completely totaled. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, but yeah, I love them. I love them. Wombats are the best. <laughs> so back to the film in terms of the director, um, this is his first feature film and previously before that he'd done i think some short films and mainly music videos yeah and you could argue he's the king of the music video couldn't you because his one of his early efforts was uh video killed the radio star for the buggles Mm. which has the distinction of being the first music video to be shown on mtv and that kind of really launched the music video as an art form and yeah, just as a phenomenon, mm. I guess. Yeah. And he was fantastic at it. I mean, some of the things that he did for Duran Duran and yeah. Elton John, both of whom feature on the soundtrack of this movie, I noticed. Oh, yes. Some of the things he did for them are quite iconic. So um, things like Rio and Wild Boys for Duran Duran and I'm Still Standing for Elton John, which was entirely made up on the spot as as far as I can tell. Mm. So. Yeah, he was quite quite famous for sort of defining the 80s music video uh, style, I think. Yeah. And you can see a lot of that in Razorback, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, I, I do. I do agree. Um, also, coupled with the cinematographer, uh, Deem Simler, uh, mm. every shot is amazingly composed yeah. and beautifully lit and the colours of every shot... Um, you could pretty much take any scene from the movie and turn it into a, mu- a movie poster mm. and it looks amazing. It it really does. I mean, they're using 
colour filters in much the same way as another movie that I love, Night of the Comet, which is is in the Oubliette as well, I think. So we might talk about that one day. Ooh. But they're using... Uh, color filters to create this this really striking world of rich orange and in the earth and rich blues in the sky and yeah from the opening sequence which goes between this beautiful sort of sunset orange landscape to the the moonlit blue night and the moon shining through a little windmill that he has on his property. Mm. Yeah, it's just a visual feast, which is the first thing that really made me sit up because a lot of B-movies around about this time, they're not much to look at, let's be honest. I mean, if you think back to society, one of the things you said is how flat and colourless that movie is. Mm. But this is just a, a real treat to look at. And it's no surprise that Dean Semler went on to win an Oscar for cinematography Um for Dances with Wolves, of course. Mm, right. I did not know that. Which is a, a much the same sort of desert setting. Mm, yeah. So, I mean, what, what did you think about the location? Yeah, it's. I wonder whether the world had seen an awful lot of... Because of, is, it, is it the outback? Is it, technically speaking, the outback? Yeah, so this was filmed in uh, a place called Broken Hill, mm-hmm. which is... Is actually a place that has had many films shot there. Um, I'm not sure what it is, whether it's purely because of the landscape or maybe um, it's easy access. I'm not sure. But um, Man Max 2 was also shot there. Okay. Uh, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert and uh, Wake and Fright, which is another Australian classic. Mm. But yeah, the uh, I, I love films set in Australian outback, um, the desert and, and just a sense of isolation mm. and the colours as well. It's it's all, that's that's the colour of Australian deserts. Mm. Um, and I think it really, really made the film pop. And it's it's such a shame these days when, when most films are just green screen films. And nothing yeah. is real. Yeah. Um, it's it's just nice to be able to see a real stunning location and shot really well. Uh, a lot of the camera work was was so interestingly composed, um, mm. putting cameras in very odd places. Even one of the pub scenes, you can see that the camera is, it looks like it's in the, the top right corner of the room mm. and you can see the fan spinning and it's, yeah, it's brilliant all of it seems so well considered and mm. and composed and thought through and it gives the whole film a sense of being almost like a like a fever dream yeah it's, it's so stylized and heightened and there are some amazing transitions in it as well like i noticed right at the very beginning you go from a, a tracking shot across the australian uh location to New York in a in a just one simple flowing movement. All of a sudden, you're in a different country, and and going from Jake to uh, Dicko's uh, scrapyard setting via the the horse head of a a pump jack and oil. I always used to think of them as oil derricks, but I looked them up and they're called pump jacks. Uh-huh. Just sort of lurching into frame and when it pulls back out, you're in a different location. It's just yeah. lots of really interesting transitions. And it yeah, it does feel very much of the 80s music video aesthetic, but it's not jarring. It just mm. creates a really uh, rich and interesting 
a visual piece of storytelling to watch. Yeah, yeah. It made every scene, no matter how mundane mm. they were, that even though they weren't mundane, visually interesting. Yeah. I remember there was another another transition where they're at the junkyard and I think one of the characters, I think it was Dicko, shoots a bottle and that bottle is, is on the side of the road of the next scene that, and so it smashes <laughs> in both scenes. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a, it's a cool transition. I, li- I really liked it. It is, yeah. It's very clever. Very clever. And of course there are lots of scenes in it that are actually literally dreamlike. So you have the, the long lengthy scene after Carl, the husband who's looking for his wife mm. or trying to find out what happened to his wife, runs afoul of the Baker brothers, Dicko and Benny. Mm. He gets left out in the desert and he's wandering the desert and I think he sort of uh, hallucinates Carl. And so he's seeing all kinds of really strange imagery and it still holds up i mean i was watching the film on a blu-ray a high definition and just scenes of him walking through this richly colored landscape with it with a huge crack in the landscape that's obviously been added in as a a map painting element and Hmm. and skeletons rising up through the cracking earth underneath him and him being almost attacked by a horse skeleton i think it is and mm. wandering through a landscape of giant black crystals and yeah it's just dropped in this kind of rich visual uh, poetry it's just sort of thrown in there with no explanation whatsoever mm, mm. And, and it and it really works just because it's it's justified by the experience that the main character is having yeah yeah so that that scene was um shot on some salt flesh Flats, um, which is uh, in, I think it's New South Wales in Australia, um, but mm. I'm probably wrong. Um, but it's, <laughs> yeah, just an amazing expanse, similar to the salt flats uh, in America, and it's just, just white mm. sand f- or salt for miles and miles, and it's brilliantly white. And, yeah, very, very surreal landscape in real life and and so really added to the scene in the movie as Mm, well yeah so that the film is a a visual feast in terms of story i think it's unique as well in that it seems to have two protagonists it's almost like an ensemble movie actually yeah well i i kind of thought it was kind of almost similar to the whole psycho thing so you have the main character at the start and then you just kill them off mm, barely that's interesting for 30 minutes into the film like maybe 20 15 minutes into the film you just kill off what you think is the main character yeah and it's i love it when they when movies do that because it's unpredictable you can't tell who's gonna live and who's gonna carry on yeah now, that's a really interesting point to make because, of course, I compared Beth to Chrissy in Jaws and Chrissy dies before the film really opens, pretty much. Mm. Um, whereas Beth is in the movie for, yeah, as you say, a good 20 minutes before she's uh, s- suddenly, brutally ravaged by the Razorback. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting uh, setup. And you, you, uh, you have two protagonists you have jake trying to hunt down the razorback that stole his baby mm-hmm. and you have uh, well his grandson and you have uh, carl as the husband who's looking to find out what happened to his wife and you have sarah mm-hmm. who's uh 
young woman living by herself in the middle of the outback, which seems quite gutsy, but she seems quite capable and, ind and independent, which is really good to see in a film in 1984. Mm. Um, so you have all these protagonists and you also have two different antagonists because you have the Razorback that's sort of stalking people and killing them occasionally. And you also have the wonderful Baker brothers who kill kangaroos and turn them into dog meat and anybody that tries to expose what they're doing, which I'm sure must be illegal, um, they uh, kill them. Yeah. I I always find with, with a lot of these kind of creature features or, you know, horror movies where it's some sort of animal going around killing the characters, it's, it's the most evil character in the movie is not normally the animal right it's normally yeah. some other character that's being selfish or being uh, looking out for themselves in some way or trying to save themselves from danger yeah so you have the mayor in jaws who's for some reason so determined to keep the tourist trap open that he'll just let people get <laughs> <Yes>. killed <laughs> so yeah i i loved i loved the fact that the baker boys were both very unpredictable mm. and so you never knew what they were going to say you never knew what they were going to do they were quite comical they were almost like comic relief <laughs> at, at points but then they exerted this really sick uh redneck kind of you know the hills have eyes or wrong turn um kind of character to them that made you really despise them at the same time as laugh at all <laughs> the things that that were coming out of their mouths. Yeah, they're pretty ridiculous. I mean, Dicko in particular just seems like, a, yeah, a real renegade from the punk era. You know, at one point he runs over a dog and Benny says to him, why did you do that? And he just says, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. And so you just get the sense that he's a, he's really quite sick. Yeah, I, I, I love villains in movies or bad characters, I guess, that are unpredictable because you never know what they're going to do. And, and they also don't seem to have a motivation. The motivation just seems to be, well, why not? Mm -hmm. It was fun. Or, you know, it's, I find that quite um, terrifying. Yeah. Because you can't, yeah, you really can't predict what they're going to do. Um, and they were dressed in a very eclectic outfits, often <laughs> floral shirts. Uh, I think Dicko was wearing... Um, swimming arms for a while <laughs> yeah, I don't in know. the middle of the desert. I don't know what those are. His his outfits are just, he just seems to roll in clothing and then stand up. I don't, I don't know what's mm. going on there. I love the contrast between Carl's very New York mm. city slicker character and all the kind of redneck mm. um, locals. Yeah, he's he's kind of played as the fish out of water, which is handy because a lot of the time some of the slang that Dicko and, uh, and other characters are coming out with, he, he doesn't understand what they mean. So when they say that they're going to fry up some snags, he, he has no idea what exactly they're going to cook for him. Mm. And, and there are lots of lovely touches in there. Like I was really pleased to see just little moments like when Carl first arrives, the guy he's renting a room from loans him his car because he says, you're never going to get a taxi out here. And, and Carl gets in his car and he gets into the left-hand side yeah. and then, then realises there's no steering wheel there. <laughs> Uh, me, me and uh, my wife went to Europe uh, last year 
as you know. Uh, but <laughs> we we kept every time we were getting picked up by a friend or family uh, or relative, we kept up kept on going to get into the driver's seat because you know it's <laughs> in Europe it's all left hand it's all left hand drive in Europe, whereas it's right hand drive in Australia and in the uk it is so yeah. yeah it was it was just a constant oh no it's wrong <laughs> wrong side <laughs> yeah it was just nice to see little moments like that and even in terms of just the gender politics so you know it's, to have sarah as this capable resourceful independent girl in the outback who rescues and nurses Carl back to health. And you have this moment where he's sort of, after his hallucinatory trip through the salt flats, he arrives at her property and she's having a shower outdoors. Mm. Um, and so he surprises her naked, but you don't get to see anything of her particularly. It's just sort of covered with branches or whatever. So it's nicely done. And she screams and he screams and passes out. Yes. <laughs> but but then you have a mirror scene later on where he's having a shower and she surprises him. So it's mm. sort of fair. And it's just nice to see, again, in, in 1984. Four, yes. Yeah. So in 1984 to see um, sort of equality and the gender politics and not seeing a woman being exploited in any way. And in fact, the two characters don't even have sex, which is surprising for any two, you know attractive couple meeting up during an adventure story in, made in 1984 you would almost mm. always have a lovemaking scene but there's yeah. nothing there i always find it funny watching especially action movies from the 80s because there's always some sort of love yeah. interest and they always seem to have sex even though the movie will be set over two nights or something <laughs> um so <laughs> for some reason they fall head over heels in two nights uh, over someone that's rescuing them or, or whatever and, and uh, manage to fit in some sexy time before uh, <laughs> before they defeat the villain. Um, but yeah, I do agree. I do agree that the female characters weren't just damsels in distress. They were very capable and they mm. were very re- resourceful and helpful uh in terms of the plot and the character and the other characters as well. Yeah, I mean Sarah instigated plenty of things and seemed to have a lot more sense than than the men actually. Mm. So you've got her trying to get Jake not to go after the Razorback by himself and instead goes and rounds up a posse to do it yes. together and when she realizes that Carl hasn't come back, she goes looking for him, and she does end up being sort of a damsel in distress with the Razorback chasing them around the the pet pack, yeah, the animal processing plant. I don't know what it is; it's revolting. <laughs> <laughs> it just seems to be carcasses and and bits everywhere. It's awful. Yeah. But she's not sort of. She doesn't need to be rescued. I mean, mm. she she comes under threat, but it's not like she needs to be rescued at any and at any given point. So, mm, yeah, really quite pleasantly surprising. So, uh, what did you think of the pig? <laughs> The razor pack. I thought they handled it pretty well. I mean, we talked before about how the animatronics were limited in 1984. Mm. I think um, Russell Mulcahy said that they'd spent sort of $250,000 
making a mechanical Razorback before he got on the movie. And then when he saw it, he hated it. And I think he said it's only in the movie for something like two seconds in total. Hmm. They had a really good animatronic face for the Razorback and they Hmm. really used that effectively. I mean, the scene where it attacks Beth, you have the point of view shot of something coming towards her car Mm. and you're kind of expecting it to be rammed or whatever. And then you just cut to her and then you cut to a a side shot looking past her and all of a sudden it is just there and it Mm. is enormous. It Mm. fills the passenger side window and it's moving and licking its lips and and covered with shiny gel or whatever. And it really does look quite... I was shocked. I was really surprised by how effective it was. And I thought they used it just the way that they cut around it and they you just see glimpses of it. It really is quite an imposing and impressive uh, force mm. when it's on screen. And they hide its limitations very well, I thought. Yeah, I think they really suffered just budget-wise. Mm. Um, I think the the film in total cost, I think, f- five and a half million Australian, which is mm. a whole bunch less in US dollars. Um, so, they yeah, they were very, very limited in what they could do with the budget that they had, especially the final scene. They kind of wrote the final scene on the fly. They didn't really have a final scene that was definitive. Mm. And so it kind of shows, did you notice that? That the scene, the final scene was a lot of shaky cam Mm. and not a lot going on. Yeah, he's kind of coaxing the Razorback spoilers towards some sort of, is it a fan or is it like a meat grinding machine? I don't know. I, I, I assumed it was some sort of meat grinding machine, but who knows? <laughs> who knows? It's a giant bladed thing that he, uh, I don't know, tricks sort of goads it into jumping into this mincing machine. Yeah. and But he does it with um, insults almost. Yeah. <laughs> it's, as if, it's as if the Razorback understands English and gets really enraged by what he's saying, um, not just the presence of Carl Generally, in yeah, the scene. yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think they, they, I think they did the best that they could with it, though. And and in terms of creating suspense and making the movie tense and shocking, I think they did really well with what they had. In much the same way as Jaws, because the shark really isn't terribly convincing if you linger on it too long. So you just use it in in other ways, and I think that worked really well. Mm. Now it's time for Random Trivia. Yes, it's time for one of my favourite parts of our pods. It's where Dan tells us a really interesting bit of trivia. Oh, well, the uh, interesting trivia I have for Razorback is uh, kind of what we've been talking about, but in the scenes we're at the slaughterhouse, so this uh, pit pet food factory, mm-hmm. um, as it seems, and there are all these carcasses hanging from hooks. Um, they're supposed to be kangaroo carcasses, mm. but I don't think they were allowed to use kangaroo carcasses, so the production designer had to carve sheep carcasses oh. into the general shape of kangaroos. <laughs> oh, no. um, but because... 
it took so long to carve, they had to reuse the same carcasses. And so after each scene, they had to go back into the freezer. But because it was shot over a few weeks, they just got more and more putrefied. And the set just reeked (laughs) of just rotting flesh. And some of the, uh, apparently one of the scenes, um, the character of Carl grabs onto one of them and the skin just rips off (laughs) and they had to glue it back on. So yeah, that's what happens when you've got a low budget, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I don't uh, envy them that on a hot day. (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) So that's my random trivia. Yay. So let's talk about the score, because that's something, another element in the movie that I really enjoyed. I had never heard of the composer before, but perhaps he is more of a figure in uh, Australian and uh, New Zealand popular culture. So the composer for this film is called Ivor Davies. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about him because I grew up in New Zealand. I think he was more of an Australian icon uh, in terms of the singer-songwriter rock music industry. Mm. Uh, So I think he was predominantly in bands before he Mm. worked on this film, but he's gone on to to score quite a few films, um, as it seems. Mm. And he used pretty much one electronic instrument or piece of electronic equipment for the entire score called a Fairlight. Yeah, which is um, the Australian equivalent of a synclavier. So this is part of the early 80s trend of experimenting with sampling as a way of generating sounds electronically rather than the analogue synthesizers of of the decade before. So it's sort of recording real sounds and then tuning them over the keyboard so that you can sort of uh, play melodies or slow them down or whatever. And, it, and the, the Synclavier in America became sort of a sound design and a composing tool. And the, the right. Fairlight was very popular amongst musicians, certainly in the UK. I mean, I'm thinking of Peter Gabriel and Kate Bush and lots of people were using the Fairlight on, on genre-defining albums in the early 80s. And it has a very distinctive sound. Yeah, I think Ivor uses it in a, in really interesting ways. I mean, I love the main theme for Razorback, and I presume he has sampled that strange guttural rattling noise that's almost like a percussion instrument, mm. almost like the Razorback growling. It gives it a real... Uh, it really interesting character. Yeah, I I found I guess because it is a sampler based uh, piece of equipment, there were moments where it sounded more like orchestral instruments, mm. and other moments that it almost sounded like computer game music, mm. but in the best way possible, I guess. Yeah. Um. So it it did create a very unique sonic landscape. It was kind of a balance between electronic and acoustic i guess yeah and it's really pioneering that whole crossing the line between sound design and music just sort of creating an acoustic world electronically mm. and and manipulating it to create sounds that you haven't heard before i mean the fairlight was a was not a cheap piece of equipment it was $32,000 at the time so that well, yep uh, that's the, <laughs> not the something priest. i just dropped <laughs> 
<laughs> no, but apparently uh, when Ivor was um, mentioning to his managers that he would really like to get one, because oddly enough, his managers were on the in the same building as the people who were making the Fairlight and all this oh. this groundbreaking synthesis. They they were upstairs and they had no idea that what the company was that was downstairs. Oh, so when right. he said, "I want to buy one of these things," and it costs the same, well, it's the same as half a small house. He said, <laughs> um, "They said to him that they calculated that he would make that money back within the first two projects that he used it on." So he used it on Razorback, and he said that it's. Fairlight. And he thought because Russell Mulcahy was playing Peter Gabriel music on set while they were filming, Mm. he thought that that's what the director wanted in terms of the score. Yeah. So he was making Peter Gabriel's style soundscapes with it and the producers were going crazy and saying, no, this isn't what we want at all. (laughs) So he, he then went and did something that was more classically almost like a a synthesizer pretending to be an orchestra Mm. and um, doing something along the lines of the Rite of Spring. And then they they loved it. And so he was fine after that. So the end result is something that is sort of a mix between the two. And it's, yeah, it's really interesting. Again, it's, I don't think it's something that people had heard a lot before. And it's sort of tied in with this whole sample-based movement that happened in the mid to late 80s Mm. and sort of change the landscape of music somewhat Mm. i thought the score accompanied the visuals very well as well because Mm. they were both quite stylized Mm. mediums i guess yeah and so it did make the film quite surreal both sonically and visually yeah and i think that goes for the sound design as well i mean you mentioned in the attacks it's very intense but i thought the whole film i mean i was listening to it on headphones the second time and i thought they did a really good job of creating the unique world that this movie is set in well not unique but certainly something that international audiences perhaps hadn't seen Mm. a lot of before it certainly wasn't like demons where sometimes the soundtrack was empty (laughs) (laughs) obviously with this film because the composer did score it for the film it was yeah a lot more um catered and it did have a sense of building up to the climactic ending and i thought he did a really good job of not telegraphing the jumps because there are a few jumps in the movie and they got me each time yeah so it's he didn't give it away he just sort of set created the environment and yeah i thought he did a really good job of it and it's i think it's somewhat of a cult classic i mean it's been released on vinyl and cd recently and now sells for hundreds of dollars because it sold out and so on so yeah it's i was listening to it in the car though because it's actually on itunes music (laughs) is it okay (laughs) yeah it is so i was listening to it on the way to work because i really enjoyed it i thought it was fascinating stuff Mm. What did you think about the acting of this film? It's uniformly pretty good, I would say, compared to some of the other movies that we've dragged out of the UB yet. <laughs> yes. I think there are a few rough spots. I mean, certainly Judy Morris, who is a fine Australian actress who seems very busy and and she's she's fantastic in the role of Beth. It has to be said her American accent does drift into Queensland occasionally. Yeah. When I first watched this film, I didn't even really realize that she was American. It kind of sounded like a hybrid between English 
and an American accent. And yeah, it wasn't very convincing. No, it's not. And similarly, the actress who's who's playing Sarah, Archie Whiteley, she's not always great. She does pretty well, but there were just a few line readings that I thought were a little bit little bit lumpy. Mm. I think she was quite new to the whole acting uh, scene. I think she'd only been in a couple of films before this one. Mm. Um, so yeah, still learning, I think. Uh, my favourite character was Jake, played by Bill Kerr. Mm. Apparently was quite an institution in terms of uh, Australian cinema. He'd learned acting the, the good old-fashioned Shakespearean way, mm. and the Baker brothers, the actors that played them, uh, were more inclined to improvise lines Mm -hmm. and I think there was quite a lot of friction uh, on set because good old Bill would say the lines perfectly and remember them Uh, and the actors David Argue and and Chris Hayward would just ad lib and and riff off each other um, (laughs) and would put Bill completely off balance and he (laughs) just couldn't deal with with them completely making up the lines and yeah, they they worked it out. I I actually did really like the the Baker Brothers characters uh, as well because they were yeah very unpredictable and very Aussie. <laughs> A lot of the lines were very very Aussie, and I loved that. Yeah, the Baker Brothers are really interesting because they they do combine the sort of comical, uh, uh, unpredictable. They're they're sort of almost likable, but at the same time, they have this mundane, carefree viciousness to them that mm. makes them quite dangerous. Mm. And so you're you're laughing, but you're afraid of them at the same time. And I think that this is a common thread in Australian cinema. I think because I'm just thinking of the character of Mick Taylor in the Wolf Creek movies is kind of similar that he's cracking jokes and making puns and and mm. so on all the time and 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 then viciously torturing people to death. So oh, it's... Yes. <laughs> so you haven't seen these movies? No, I have not seen these movies. <laughs> You're not not a fan no. <laughs> of, of, the, of the torture porn. So, I, yeah, really interesting characters um, and um, well played, I think. Mm. So overall, I think, um, yeah, the acting's pretty good and it is an ensemble cast. I don't think you could necessarily say Carl or Jake or Sarah are the lead character. I think they... They are an ensemble, aren't mm, they? Yes, I th- I do. I, I like the fact that Jake didn't save the day because you expect that he's a grizzled mm. old man with a shotgun and he's got his wits about him and he knows about the Razorback. He's been hunting it for years, and then he dies before the final <laughs> final act. <laughs> so I like that. It, it's unpredictable again, um, like I mentioned. Uh, I just realized I've been saying Baker Boys instead of Baker Brothers, I think. Baker Boys is actually an Australian band. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> I'm sorry. I think it's a brand of cakes. <laughs> is it? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> oh, dear. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Mobley Awards. Welcome back, and it's that time, it's the Moobly Awards, where we pick out some of our favourite things in a number of categories. So to kick it off, we always start with favourite 
quote. Yes, and there are quite a few to choose from. I will kick off by saying my favorite. I mean, a, a lot of them come from Jake and Dicko. And I think probably the most famous one from Jake is there's something about blasting the shit out of a Razorback that brightens up my whole day. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's something I want to just slip into conversation uh, every now and again. <laughs> Yeah. And really good thing to say to an investigative journalist who's also an animal rights campaigner. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's very true. Yeah, I, I agree that Jake and Dicko had the best quotes. I love the one where... So Carl has met Dicko and Benny, uh, the Baker brothers, and I think Dicko says to Carl, American, are you? Carl says, <laughs> no, Canadian. And then Dicko responds... Oh, Canadians are Americans, aren't they? Uh, which is, <laughs> I think it's, you know, it's poking fun at the Canadians and Americans because it's often poked fun at in movies, the difference between New Zealanders and Australians. And yeah, I kind of like the, the, the reversal. It was, it was funny. I love that. Um, I'm going to say another quote because Jake had so many awesome ones. <laughs> so Jake had... I mean, there were a lot of funny quotes, but I really like this quote he says uh, when he's talking to Carl about Razorbacks. So he says, Razorbacks, vicious, shit-eating, godless vermin. God and the devil <laughs> wouldn't have created a more despicable species. Oh. It just, it's so <laughs> Shakespearean of us. It's, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's so poetic. I love it. And it does turn it into quite a formidable adversary when the fact is that they just had, you know, a, a large pig in a blanket with some rubber tusks and a, a robot that didn't really work. <laughs> so, yeah, it really creates that sense of dread. I love the way that he says it's only got two states of being, dangerous or dead. Oh, yes. I love that as well. <laughs> and then when, when Sarah's trying to persuade Jake not to go after the Razorback alone, he says he's only bacon, girly. <laughs> That's great. So good. So many great lines. Um, so most eighties moment. I have one for this. If uh, if you'd like me to kick off. Yeah, sure thing. Uh, when we have a night nighttime scene, we're looking at Jake's trailer early on in the movie, and there is an animated rotoscoped shooting star over the top of his trailer. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I just thought. If I had a, a pound for every time a shooting star is animated across a nighttime scene in an 80s movie, oh, yeah. uh, I would be a rich man, I think. I thought it looked really effective as well. Um, it yeah, does, it does. It's I'd, actually a pretty good one. Yeah. Um, and there's also a few shooting stars in, in the dream sequence as well and uh, with a accompanying great wishing sound to them. Mm. What I thought was the most 80s moment uh, was there's two scenes where they're driving a car and I guess they drive over a ramp or a bump and it just flies into the air. Uh, <laughs> just, I guess it's not really an 80s thing. It's just a, a cinema thing that cars always fly into the air. And But it wasn't even a chase scene or anything. So, yeah, unnecessary, but looks cool. Unnecessary airborne vehicles. <laughs> exactly. Before we move on, another 80s moment that I've found was the final final shot at the end of the movie there's a freeze frame <laughs> before the credits yeah. roll and it's very 80s and 
It's seen in everything. Yeah, I think it was, um, in fact, it was considered quite anachronistic in the third Harry Potter movie where Alfonso Cuaron chose to end that with a freeze frame. Oh, yes. With, uh, with all three kids. <laughs> it's, pretty, <laughs> it's pretty wacky expressions on their faces as well. Um, best hair? I mean, I guess Dicko's hair because it just looks so ratty. Uh, and there were, <laughs> it does. there were patches of shaved hair for no reason. Yeah, I don't know if that's like a condition that the character had or if he just cut his hair with a scythe. I don't know yeah, what yeah. was going on. It's pretty amazing. But I actually think Sarah had quite respectable mm. hair and Beth as well. Usually the ladies are the ones that fall foul of the changing fashions more obviously than the guys, I think, in, in movies. Mm. Okay, so favourite scene? Probably... The dream sequence scene was one of the best scenes. Um, just visually, lighting-wise, surreal-wise. Yeah, great scene. It is a great scene, yeah. It's, it's quite a treat. It's almost like a, if it had a Duran Duran song over the top of it, it wouldn't have been out of place, would it? Mm, no, not at all. <laughs> I could just imagine Simon the Bond wandering through the salt flats. For me, it has to be, and this is another Jaws parallel. There is a scene in Jaws where two particularly stupid people attempt to catch the shark by throwing the wife's roast into the water with a hook in it <laughs> and, and attaching a chain to a jetty or a pier. And the shark ends up tearing the jetty off and then coming back and almost catching one of the guys as he's trying desperately to get back out of the water and you have a scene with a character in Razorback that you have never seen before just this beer-bellied guy watching TV and he uh, for some reason decides to catch the Razorback with a trap that he attaches to the side of his house and then you have a second scene after he set up this trap where the Razorback does actually get into the trap and get stuck and then get furious and run away and you cut to inside the house just in time to see the whole corner of this guy's living room rip off and just disappear into the night sky with seemingly the television still yes, plugged in. I noticed that as well. The television still playing while still playing. this whole corner of his house is, is disappearing into the darkness. And it's a fantastic shot because it's over the shoulder. The guy is in the scene. You just think it's a reverse angle on the television. And then all of a sudden half the set rips off and just freewheels into the night sky. <laughs> It's an inc incredible sequence. There's no reason for it at all, but it's mind-blowing to watch. Mm. I did find uh, there was a, a tremendous amount of destruction that was very well pulled off in the movie. Even the first scene where the Razorback bulldozes his... Um, Jake's house pretty much um, and it just ignites into flames <laughs> it does yeah so it ends with the guy wandering out into the desert calling his grandson's name with his whole house burning behind him you think my goodness what on earth did the Razorback do <laughs> exactly so uh, most cliched horror moment uh, probably one of the jump scares um, so the one where Carl has just passed out from seeing uh, Sarah for the first time and she mm. has nursed him back to health in her house and he wakes up 
And then she turns around and then jump scare, she's got a pig for a face. Very, very cliche horror. Yes, and referring back to demons, it's yet another woman facing the other direction. And when she turns around, she's got lots Uh, of makeup on. (laughs) Um, So what what was your cliche horror moment? Yeah, I think I would definitely agree. I think that one is is probably the most uh, cliched horror moment in mm. the movie. Uh, what about your favourite special effect? Well, I guess it has to be the pig, right? <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the last scene where where he's impaling, I think he's impaling Dicko. Uh, also, mm. it's not the last scene, but one of the penultimate last scenes Um He's impaling Dicko, and it's it's yeah, pretty full on scene and lots of sound design. But if you actually watch the deleted scene, which was on my DVD, um, he mm. the Razorback is actually eating him. So you, his oh. half his leg is in the Razorback's mouth, and he's slowly consuming him. Uh, I wish they'd left, wow. left that in because <laughs> I was quite shocked. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that is brutal. Now I think for me it would be it would be the first time we see the face of the Razorback in uh, the window because yes. it's it's so shocking and it's um, um, the the Razorback is being puppeteered really well and is lit really well mm. and you it, I was completely convinced by it. I thought it was great. Yeah, it's kind of like the same scene in Jaws, the we're going to need a bigger boat scene. Yes. So that's the sort of the first time you really get a, a good look at Bruce the shark and it's. And it's very well executed, I think, mm. actually, that moment. So, yeah. Uh, favorite sound effect? Uh, Over to the sound designer first, I think. <laughs> this is trickier, actually, because the, usually I have a worst sound effect. and But actually, the sound design in this movie is good. I mean, there aren't any Wilhelm screams mm, in there. No. The an- animals given really interesting sound effects. There is one scene where... Th- the Razorback kind of sounds like a Wookiee. Oh, yes. <laughs> which, is, which is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that would be my favourite, just because I thought, oh, Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, there's there's a scene before you see... Uh, so it's after Beth is, uh, meets her demise and Carl is out with the Bake brothers and they're hunting kangaroo at night for some reason. Mm. But you hear these really strange sounds... And they kind of sound a cross between maybe a pig and a wolf and a dog. Mm. But there's some sort of indescript animal. And I, I, I quite liked it because I just didn't know what it was, I guess. Yeah. But it was supposed <laughs> to be some sort of creepy animal in, in, the, in, the, in the bush or something. Yeah. So not like the scene in Willow where you hear the strange howling noises at night and for no reason and you never find out what they are or why they're there well in willow it was it was actually during a day scene so it didn't, <laughs> oh, it didn't really have the same creepy effect <laughs> no it's just strange so star rating for fake blood i thought the blood was pretty good in this movie yeah there, there wasn't a huge amount of it but yeah it was it was quite subtle i i, I found mm. it like used effectively you know you saw it when you needed to see it mm. um and it wasn't over the top or anything like that so yeah. One thing that did strike me as slightly odd was when they discover Jake's body, when they open the shed door and you cut to the the blood splattered up the wall, it's still running, which mm. kind of surprised me. Have they 
was this only minutes ago or is he just very runny jake if <laughs> you uh, actually if you see the deleted scene um he's actually covered in worms as well <laughs> he's, oh he's wow. half he's half uh <laughs> mauled and and so you can kind of see his his bones almost and and then there's worms or maggots or something covering him wow it's quite a it's quite a disgusting scene actually wow putrefaction moves fast in australia <laughs> it does it's the climate it's the climate <laughs> it's the climate yeah <laughs> um i would like to add a category to Ooh. the moomly awards what did you think was the funniest scene uh, the funniest scene i would say would be the scene where the guy's television gets pulled out into yeah. the middle of the night because i was roaring with laughter during <laughs> that for me uh the funniest scenes are always the most unintentionally funny scenes so <laughs> in the very the opening scene we've got jake his grandson's just been stolen by a wild boar and his house is on fire and he's walking towards the camera and he's just screaming at the top of his lungs and then there's another scene where i can't remember what happens but he ends up screaming at the top of the lungs and and there's a there's a big pan out and then there's a third scene where i think the baker <laughs> brothers break his le- legs or something and he wakes up and he he sees his broken legs and he and then he starts screaming at the top of his lungs. I just thought it was like a third a third time. <laughs> what? Um, yeah, it's unintentionally funny, but I, I laughed a, a bit too much at that scene. A bit too much at an old man who who's been hobbled with a hatchet in the desert with a exactly. razorback tracking him down. But what gets me about that scene is he wakes up. And then he looks at the wounds and then he screams. Yeah, yeah. He needs a visual confirmation before he knows he's in peril. Okay. Another funny scene um, was, you know, when when they have the posse, they're waiting in the pub and they've got the, they have the tracker of the pig. So they all run outside and pile into cars to, to go chase after the pig. And then a man on horseback exits the pub <laughs> um, like on horseback so yeah i i don't know i think it's 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 such an australian thing to just put wildlife in any situation and it's always <laughs> hilarious but yeah very funny yeah lots of great moments in this movie to choose from but that is our choices for the moobly awards So it's time for the final verdict, Dan. You, I uh, guess you'd seen this movie before. Had you not seen it in a while? Uh, no, actually, I think I watched it oh, maybe two years ago. So mm. not very recently. I actually found it better the second time uh, watching mm. it. I noticed a lot more. I appreciated it a lot more. Yeah, I love I love this film. <laughs> I think it's become a, a huge cult classic in terms of Aussie cinema. Australian films, there are not a huge amount of horror. Um, so mm. it's it's quite revered now. And at the time of release, it 
completely bombed and didn't do as uh, successful as they intended. No, which surprises me because for a country that has so much lethal wildlife, you would think (laughs) that a film that is a revenge of nature movie would have a really uh, accepting, engaged audience to draw yeah. from. And especially, I mean, we mentioned before that this, of course, makes reference to the Dingo Ate My Baby case mm. um, from 1980, which, of course, was immortalised by Meryl Streep in A Cry in the Dark or yes. Evil A- Angels, I think it was called, in uh, Australia which got her her sixth Best Actress nomination at the Oscars. Six already in 1984, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, she's no slouch. Yeah, you would have thought that Revenge of Nature movies would be a shoo-in in Australia, but apparently not. No, no. I think it did suffer from the studios as well, so a lot of the more grisly... Horrifying scenes were cut out of the movie to mm. lower the rating. Um, but yeah, I, I, even even the cut, the theatrical cut, is a very interesting and visually stunning film with some pretty good acting mm. and great characters. Uh, I love the dynamic between the city slicker, Carl character, and the local Australians and... Mm. And the location was beautifully bleak and arid. Mm. Yeah, overall, just fantastic film. But it does have flaws, and I think those flaws only exist because the budget was just so low. Five and a half million uh, Australian dollars isn't a huge amount for something that involves a killer pig the size of a rhino. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I think they did what they could, but it it does have its flaws. It does have its flaws, but I mean, when you look at the the kind of the, the intent that's put into the framing and the cinematography of every shot, and the wicked sense of humor and the verve of the performances, mm. the fact that the story is not simple, it's not obvious. There are there are lots of different characters and their endings and their eventual demise or success isn't sort of known from the outset. It's a really interesting, unique movie with a lot of energy, a lot of visual inventiveness. It's just a thrill to watch. I thought it was really entertaining. And despite the limitations in terms of the Razorback itself, it's a good adventure and suspenseful and exciting when it needs to be. I think it works really well and I think it stands up as much as, for example, Jaws does. I think it's it's obviously derivative of Jaws. It's not up there in terms of production value perhaps, but it's, uh, it's a damn good movie. Mm. I think everybody involved should be... Proud. I mean, Russell Mulcahy, of course, went on to do Highlander, which made him an international uh, success. Mm. And then Highlander 2, which I think pretty much <laughs> destroyed his career for a while. <laughs> oh, yeah. So it's ups and downs. I think he has had a couple of experience, well, at least another experience where he has worked on a movie for a while. And because of his attention to the the scope and the epic scale of the shots. But he was replaced on another movie, one of the Rambo movies, I think he was replaced. So yeah, it's it's just nice to see this much effort put into 
the way the film looks mm. and the way the film is designed. Uh, well, I completely agree. So I guess it's unanimous that we are setting Razorback free. Yeah, Jake would be so angry with us. We're going to let this little critter go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, little guy, run off. Oh, look at him go. <laughs> So Razorback was my pick for this episode and it's now your pick for next episode. What will we be looking at? Well, we still will be in the arena of horror, but this time I want us to look at a sequel that is not as famous as the original film. It is... Amityville 2, The Possession. Oh... Okay, Mm. I haven't seen that. I've seen the first movie and I have seen the remake, but not the second. No, and uh, yeah, it's much, much maligned in some circles uh, for some of the elements in it and largely forgotten, I think. So I think it'll be interesting for us to drag that one out and have a peek at it. Ooh, looking forward to it. Yeah, so thanks for joining us, everyone, for another episode of Movie Oubliette. Please do follow us on our social media outlets, Twitter and Instagram and so on, and tell us what you thought about this film and whether you agreed with what we said or what you think we should look at in future episodes. Uh, If you want to follow us, our handle is Movie Oubliette, and if you're not sure how to spell Oubliette, it would be... Oh, I I think I zoned out for a bit. What was that? Yeah, I think that should help. And please give us a rating and review on iTunes or uh, whatever other podcast platform you're using. Really helps us out. It really does, yes. Only five-star ratings, though. Only five-star. So join us in the dungeon next time on Movie Oubliette. I'm Conrad. And I'm Dan. Goodbye for now. Farewell.